Hi, folks. This is the podcast we recorded on Sunday with a, a fa- fantastic panel, including uh, Emma D'Souza in Fermanagh, Sam McElwain in Belfast, and Thomas Byrne from Fianna Fáil. Uh, it is a deep dive into all events uh, north of the border and the implications in the south. Uh, we talk about you know the, the issues around the protocol, what it means to members of Sam's community relative to the nationalist community, the situation on the Glasnevin Monument, uh, the memorial, what we how what we've heard about collusion and how deep it goes and what it, what it actually means, and of course we talk about some of the other stories in terms of inflation, um, inequality, and what we'd love to get back to politics tackling these issues instead of talking about flags and. Um, sausages and and uh borders in the irish sea look i think it's really good we are back live on sunday uh, it's it'll be there in your feed if you're a patron so it's patreon.com forward slash tortoise we'll have another great panel lined up if you aren't a patron you've already missed a conversation i had yesterday morning with senator lynn rowan on the need for the citizens assembly for for on drugs to happen now and why it not happening now is costing lives every single day. Uh, and there are also conversations with Sinn Féin's Mairead Farrell and with um, members of both the Ukrainian and the Portuguese government. Uh, you're missing out on those. All of those are available on patreon.com forward slash tortoise And oh, actually, you're, you're probably going to miss out on a conversation I'm recording in a few minutes with uh, Green Party Janet candidate Hazel Chu. So uh, that'll be another interesting one. Uh, please join us if, and enjoy this podcast. I think it's really, really good. Good afternoon and welcome to the Tortoise Shack Sunday special. Uh, with this, We had a week off last week, Martin, but only we didn't. We were... It was a, a busy, busy week off, busier than if, yeah. we, if we don't um, usually have a week off, Tony. Yeah, but um, it seems that we we went up to the, uh, the to the attic, as we always refer to it, Sam. And uh, whatever way we left, it seems to things have only gotten worse. Um, we are joined by uh, our, our our friend in Belfast, Sam McElwain, um, our regular contributor from Fermanagh, Emma D'Souza, and um, Finna Falls, Thomas Byrne. Um, thanks for joining us, folks. Okay. Martin here. Thomas, we'll come to you first. I know you're under time pressure. Everything that's going on in Northern Ireland, the present moment in time, is this just what we're used to with Northern Ireland, always to the brink, or is this different and should should stuff happen now? Well, it's hard to know. I mean, to be quite honest, I thought we were going to get used to something else, something better. Um, you know, we've seen over the last few months some really significant uh jobs and announcements in Northern Ireland, really big investments into Northern Ireland, really positive image starting to come of Northern Ireland, the business community being listened to by the public more than anybody. Um, I think that's really important. And now we see this, what's happened uh, on Friday, and I think it's it's, it's it's awful, really, because the one thing that struck me was I was going on, on BBC Ulster there on, on Thursday evening to, to discuss this, and the immediate discussion before I went on was how the health minister... Have it to solve a number of challenges, one of which was he wasn't certain what laws he'd be able to use to deal with the pandemic, whether to ease restrictions or if they had to impose restrictions again, and also in terms of the budgets for hospitals and, and things like that that really have an impact on people. I thought it was just extraordinary that a health minister could be left scratching around for, for legal powers in the middle of a pandemic. 
Um, so I, I think it's I think it's awful. I think there's so much to look forward to in Northern Ireland. I think the in terms of the issues around the protocol that the European Commission have acknowledged and the British government uh, have acknowledged too, and both are working on, I'm really confident they can be resolved. Um, and that, you know, letting settle down in Northern Ireland, that people can move on with the normal business of government, the normal day-to-day issues that you know um, really should be uh, obsessing the population of the political class there, whether it's housing or jobs or whatever it is. Do you see a technical way through this, Thomas? Is there some wording? Is there some way through this? Well, look, I mean, they, as I understand it, the, the ministers will probably be allowed to remain in situ. I mean, the legislation to do that is not quite true yet, um, but it should happen. And that will obviously give some some comfort for the next few weeks, at least until, until an election is called. We're going to have an election as well. Um, and I think I'd be very wary if I were parties trying to move to the extremes. There's a there's a growing body of of public opinion in Northern Ireland which is looking towards the middle, which is looking towards the same issues that we look uh, to here and, and on this side. Um, you know whether it's housing, whether it's health, all those issues. Um, and that's why you've seen some parties' poll ratings come down, and other parties' poll ratings go up. Most notably, Alliance. Lesser extent to go through Unionist Party would be beneficiary there as well, the Green Party, for example, as well. Um, and the truth is, whatever politicians say with the protocol, it's here to stay. Um, it's a legal agreement between London and Brussels. And I'm really hopeful that the London and Brussels can work out the issues. Um, that's that's what certainly we we want. We want to to solve them, resolve them. Um, but anybody who thinks that there's going to be some kind of, you know, protocol scrapping or whatever is 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 not really in the real world. Uh, the real world are the real world problems that people face on the ground. So, Thomas, uh, Thomas, I'm going to go to Sam for a moment, if that's okay, because Sam, we, we've discussed the protocol at length, and 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 Emma, you might want to come in on this as well. But I've seen sort of people mention this week, you know, oh, it's costing a million pounds a day, and it's it's doing this, and some of this seems to be, I don't know, like I mean, you you're you're a working class unionist, loyalist, lefty, and and you see this and. Does that actually bear fruit in, in your lived experience or, or is it just something that we're using now to create more division, unfortunately? I think a lot of the, the, the facts that we're, we're, we're dragging up around the protocol, the shortages of goods or medicine movement, it just adds fuel to the fire. I think the original fire is always going to be there um, and it's to do where, where the post, custom posts are. For my community, um, listening to the business sector doesn't really matter because a lot of them aren't impacted directly by the business sector. Um, a lot of them are unemployed. A lot of them work very basic manual jobs and they don't see that impact that the business sector are talking about. Um, going back to what Thomas said, the protocol is part of a legal document, but legal documents can be altered, edited, rewritten. Um, and I think that's where we need to be. We need to be showing that there is flexibility here beyond what we're looking at at the moment. Um, we're looking at cost. My community, especially, are looking at where the custom posts are. They're on British soil uh, between two parts of Britain. Uh, however, you want to look at that. That is how we see it. Um, what is what is expected of us is not expected of anybody else. The custom posts could be ten miles south of Newry, but they're not because that cannot be countenanced by certain members of other communities. But our community is expected to swallow that. Um, I, I know what I know what you want me to say, um, but it's it's, it's more than I ta- ta- no, no, Sam. I don't want you to say anything. <laughs> but, no, but I don't because I know you. We've had this conversation several times over. You are you you see yourself as a British citizen who stands on British soil. 
Yes. That is, we we have we have spoken about the fact that we need to find a, a space for everybody in a shared island and, and our future. And we've had that conversation and we continue to have it. And to your credit, like you've always been really open to that conversation. But I suppose what I mean is this, like Th- Thomas is right as well. It is a legal document and it, it was nuanced. It was, there was lots of negotiations. Thomas, you yourself traveled backwards and forwards when there was, you know, talks of it being put in the bin and, and 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 the way it was going to be done and how it was going to be rewritten. And I think concessions have been made on all sides. I, Just before Thomas answers, sorry, Thomas. Yeah. Uh, when somebody gets married, there's a legal document signed at that point. Marriages don't always last, do they? Um, <laughs> and, and they can be superseded by other legal documents, including divorce proceedings, and then you can remarry. There's nothing to stop this being thought out better and maybe taken into consideration every community's wishes um we see it as we're not taking into consideration thomas okay yeah well look i'll answer that i mean just the divorce analogy is a good one because of course the protocol has a clause where it has to be renewed after four years uh, by the assembly um, and quite frankly the way opinion polls are today it's highly likely that it would be renewed uh, after the election um, if those opinion polls bore out and certainly would be today in terms of the, num- the makeup of the assembly it would be there um, but I fully understand why a unionist person feels the way you do Sam I, I, I mean I absolutely understand that and that's why we were really keen that the European Commission go to the north of Ireland meet people on the ground and I, I, I've spoken to many unionist politicians and the one thing that keeps coming up is not the European Court of Justices but it's, it's the issue of customs you're right that if you're getting a parcel over from London or wherever that, you know, it has to be checked. And that literally, a lot of that checking is, it could be just electronic or it simply could be a form. It's not that each parcel is is, is is looked at individually. But that's actually where the talks between London and the European Union are focused, to try to reduce the checks there to the minimum possible. Let's not forget, there were always checks um, historically at Larne and Belfast. They probably went out in recent years, but there were animal checks and plant checks there in the past. In America, you can't send fruit or veg from one part of the states to the other, depending on the laws of individual states. So this is and similarly in Australia. The, the, these are not unique provisions. Brexit is something that I would say the majority of the nationalist population are very, very upset about that it happened. So what do we have to have? We Everybody agreed that the border on the island of Ireland should be left away. It is like everyone, every party, not everyone. Um, so you get a compromise then, which is the protocol. The Good Friday Agreement is, is a compromise. So I think nobody's going to get everything they want, but I would say that the European Union is bending over backwards to make sure that we can genuinely resolve to the fullest degree possible the concerns that people like Sam uh, and the unionist community are raising and their genuine concerns. I, I just want to speak, I want to come to Emma, but I want to make one point. Sam um, has been very clear about this. He, 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 he was opposed to Brexit because he didn't know what, what, what this, he, you kind of suspected it was going to be sort of this kind of shit show afterwards, Sam. So I don't want to speak for you, but you, but that was very much your mindset. Emma, you're listening to this now and, you know, I, I've seen, you've been frustrated about the, um, you know, oh, uh, they're, they're, we want the checks to cease as of tonight, and you know all of these um, this gamesmanship that hasn't happened. What's your thoughts on the last on the last few days, and and how do you see it going? Yeah, I mean, it's it's electioneering. That's exactly what it is. It's a uh, it's a response from the DUP to their drop in um, in the opinion polls. It's the fact that unionism at the moment is the most fractured it's ever been, with them buying for um, seats in the next election. 
You see this divide coming up where the TUV is increased in the pools, like to a point where you really wouldn't expect the TUV to be. Um, and then you also see the UUP you now with Doug Beatty at the helm vying to come in as the largest unionist party in the north and the DUP at the same time simultaneously dropping in the pools. So it's just straight up electioneering for the DUP. It doesn't represent the majority wishes of the people of Northern Ireland. Um, and it really just creates instability and, you know, another uh, crisis for people to have to um, stress about and worry about in the coming weeks. As Thomas already said, there are uh, provisions coming through next week in Westminster, which are going to create, I suppose, a type of safety net. That will give about six weeks, but that can be extended until there's another um, election. But it does have an, an impact in terms of the fact that the executive can't meet, they can't take those decisions as such as the budget. Um, and they'll also legislation, for example, is at a consideration stage, it's not going to be able to proceed. So it does have a substantial impact on different areas of people's lives. And it really just undercuts, uh, you know, political the institutions here. Again, Northern Ireland, this is the sixth time it's collapsed since 1998. So it's quite frustrating that this is where we are again. And I just want to touch on some of the points that Sam made there as well. You know, Sam speaks about coming from working class community and Thomas has talked about investment. You know, there is has been substantial investment in Northern Ireland as a result of the Northern Ireland Protocol because we do have dual market access. You know, my argument has been for a long time that there could be substantial economic gains for the North and that this would be very beneficial, especially to working class communities, which really haven't seen the benefits of the peace dividend from the Good Friday Agreement. So there are substantial gains to be made. Substantial mitigations have already taken place. There is negotiations going on. And really what's happening with the DUP is not not good. It's not conducive to a negotiation process. And on a final point around the border, look, we all know in this space that a border had to go somewhere and it's just not sustainable or realistic for that to have been on the island of Ireland. You all know I'm in Fermanagh um, and that I'm a couple of miles from the border and there's so many crossings across the island of Ireland that it just isn't workable. And I think it's important also not to frame this in a unionist nationalist um, sort of narrative, because it's not just nationalists that don't want a border on the island of Ireland. Sam, come to you on that. And it's a good point. A border had to go somewhere. Yeah, so um, why why not? I was saying most of the crossings that Emma's talking about are, are the crossing of people uh, on a normal commute or shopping trip. Or That's not that the issue with most of these border customs checks. It's to do with goods. Now, I mean, there was a report this week showing that when flowers leave Amsterdam and head towards Switzerland, they basically use GPS to say they've departed and they've arrived at their their destination. Why can't something like that not be used? It doesn't have to be a physical check. Why are we putting people in high-vis jackets on a port checking things when other parts of the EU can facilitate moving in and out of the EU? Well, but uh, Sam, Sam, you're right. There are, I know of pharmaceuticals that when they leave, when, when they enter the truck, say the truck was in Cork, when they enter the truck, they're, they're deemed to have already have arrived in, say, the Netherlands because they're checked there and they're stamped there and they're licensed there under under that thing. That is possible. But Thomas, you might have a, a, a little more on that, I, I'd imagine. Well, if the goods are coming into Cork and then to the Netherlands straight away, they're they're within the single market of the European Union. Yeah, and that's a but that's a but that's a um, a really significant advantage for Northern Ireland. And I mean, some of the investment that we've seen, I think, is up in Lurgan, and uh, there's investment I saw in Newton Abbey as well. I mean, you know, there's no doubt that some of this investment is going to have a hugely uh, positive trickle down effect. And when we talk about customs checks, like I remember, 
I remember as a kid, like we didn't go to Newry that often, like, but I remember stuff being checked on the way home, and I think most people uh, do. It, the problem is that nobody was ever going to stop you walking across the border. There was always going to be no a soft, no hard border if you're walking across. But the minute you bring a good, whether it's your car, whether it's a, a packet of ham or a piece of meat from the supermarket, then you come into complications. And that's the difficulty. So it's not just a case of goods coming over commercially. The single market of the European Union, for example, you can't bring a sandwich in from England into the Netherlands. That's the rules. Britain decided they wanted to bring those rules back. That's up to them. Uh, they, they had a vote. Unfortunately, Northern Ireland got stuck in the uh, in, 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 in the splash of that. That's that's a problem. It's here. But I can honestly say that I really, I mean, we, we ha- I have not been going around flag-waving United Ireland talk because I know, you know, even though that's my, I'm certainly a nationalist, no question about that, but I know that Sam and unionists and loyalists up there are feeling pretty insecure at the moment. And that's why we've done everything possible to ensure that whatever rules have to be there for the protocol are to the benefit of Northern Ireland and to the least hassle for the people in Northern Ireland. Um, and that's that's what we're really trying to do. Um, and, and I think you can see a genuine effort from the European Union and, and, and certainly the, the government under Micheál Martin on that. We don't want to be causing hassle. We want the least possible hassle for Northern Ireland. Thomas, I think you had a good run, and I, I, but Sam, you wanted to come in. Yeah, uh, two, two points for Thomas. Um, Firstly, my community sees this as another step towards the 32-county uh, All-Ireland that everybody seems to want. Um, but the, the, the actions at Glass Nevin uh, Cemetery put a different tint in that. We already see it in Belfast City Council that we don't feel as if it's a warm house for unionism anymore. We feel as if we're excluded, and that's only on the city level. If we go national level and we feel as if we're going to be excluded or have the attitude of we're tolerated rather than accepted. That would be my first point. The second point is, what is the impact of Brexit on the Republic's economy at the moment? Um, There's not a lot of figures coming out to show how Brexit has impacted on your trade with the closest neighbour. Are you in deficit with that or are you rebalancing the books with trade with Europe? Well, certainly trade is down with, with Britain. Um, and that's a tragedy because it just quite frankly costs more money to do it, like in terms of customs checks and indeed tariffs as well. Even though we have a tariff-free agreement, there's lots of occasions where actually, um, because of what's called the rules of origins, you need you need to pay tariffs. So people are then saying, well, look, it's much handier to order directly uh, from Europe. And you'll see that with consumer goods, people ordering online, but you'll also see it with business as well. So it's it's had a hugely detrimental effect, so much so that we've had to put investment into the economy. The European Union have put in place a Brexit um, adjustment fund. We got a billion euro from that to help with uh, some of the things that we've had to do. So yeah, it's had a hugely negative effect and we don't have the easements um, that Northern Ireland has. So in terms of the, the you know, the the, the, the the checks are much stricter uh, in Dublin and in in, in uh, Rosslare, for example. So so it's been a really difficult situation. Um, I, I, just in terms of uh, victims and memorialising victims, I don't think we should have a hierarchy of victims. I think the history of this island is extremely complex. Um, I, we don't have to celebrate every every side of that history if that's not our particular view. But I think we have to recognise that there are different versions or different memories um, of history uh, on this island. I think that's really, really important. And I'm really keen to do that. Like, I mean, you know, I live quite close to where the Battle of the Boyne was fought. Not something that I would celebrate, but it's something that I acknowledge as a really significant historical moment. And I see that other people do want to celebrate it. That's their, um, that's, that's their right and entitlement on the island. And we've got to ensure that everybody feels included. Coming up to the Civil War, I have two grandparents, um, both uh, deceased. 
on either side of it. So I think we, we really cannot pretend that history on this island is simple. It's complex. Um, and anybody that pretends that it isn't complex is is really deluded, I would say. Unfortunately, I have to. Um, yeah, Tom, my, Thomas, I'm, I'm aware. I'm aware. You, I'm aware. You've you've got. To, but I just want to come on on the on the monument um, issue, Sam. It, it was a it was a it was a bad idea, badly executed as well. I mean, it's been you know there hasn't been there's been a failure this centenary of uh, anniversaries and the conversations that we we should be having that we probably we have amongst ourselves haven't been happening at, at high levels. And when you see that, I, I saw you tweeted saying, you know. You, you say my voice is welcome, yet my um, yet yet I don't feel like that, that that's the truth, and I can understand that. But again, I you know we 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 see the examples of I was in the Free Dairy Museum last week recording within the museum, and the curator of the museum said he would love to visit the museums of you know in unionist communities and loyalist communities, and he said he doesn't expect them to change his opinions. But he does expect them to say that he gives them a broader understanding of how the how things are. And I know you've seen this because you've spoken yourself with, um, you know, Gareth writes a lot on 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 the history of uh, of unionism, loyalism, and and the likes of the Tartan gangs. We have a lot that we don't. But there's a, there is an ignorance to that, and I and I can't blame you for being annoyed to see that the that the memorial was uh, was desecrated and then and then this awful word discontinued but it's also it's not as simple as um as as that you know well the more if the memorial had never been there this wouldn't bother me i would not be one for calling for it to be there in the first place i recognize there's a lot of hurt um and a lot of anguish over over this issue but the fact that it was there and it won't be tolerated by those around it it gives me an indication that maybe me and my culture wouldn't be tolerated um so it being there has caused the issue. How it's been reacted to is another issue entirely. I think it was badly executed, Sam. Yeah. I yeah. think that's that's more the key issue is that it was badly. There is a place, but that wasn't the place, yeah. and that wasn't the place. Do I think they have something to fear? Can, hang on, hang on. Can I, Martin, Martin, can I say something about that? Yeah. Glasnevin is absolutely the place because Glasnevin has always been multi-denominational. It's never, it's always, it didn't have to be all on the one wall. I am not saying that it had to be outside Gla- of Glasnevin, Glasnevin but is, there was is, a different way to do it. Glasnevin is the, is the place because it's always, even, even when we had all sorts of events happening in Ireland, Glasnevin was one, was one place where um, it didn't matter your race or creed or religion, all that, all of those things you could, you, you know, the soil wasn't consecrated for, for the Holy Roman Catholic church. Um, so I just think it is, it is the place, but maybe one wall was a big issue. Uh, Emma, I don't know if you've, if you've been watching some of this, but it must make, you know, cause you, you, you mentioned, the, I heard a couple of people mentioned the good Friday agreement uh, already on this thing and it's still unfulfilled. And we're still going to lose out now on the whole. Um, both of you and Sam have big shared concerns about housing, health, the um, the drug drugs ep- epidemics and in, inequality. And yet, you know, here we are again talking about, um, you know, monuments and, and, and flags and, and red and green, orange and yeah, green. I mean, it is really disappointing. We're so far away from, uh, sort of, I suppose, a shared island and the aspirations of a rights-based um, Northern Ireland under the Good Friday Agreement. Um, and I think there's loads of issues with that. I mean, if we look at the, you know, the flags going up, uh, the parachute regiment flags going up ahead of Bloody Sunday, I mean, that was absolutely atrocious 
to do that and to do that solely with the intention of hurting uh, families and those who are grieving. So there's, we're so far away at times from the reconciliation that we truly need here. And, you know, I was noting there um, Sam's concerns around culture being respected and around, um, I suppose, a belief within some indigenous communities about being tolerated and not accepted. And I think we have to also recognize that that is an issue for Irish citizens in Northern Ireland, that they are tolerated but not accepted by many strands of unionism and political unionism. I mean, one way to look at that is just looking at the fact that there's so much contention around Irish language, you know, but there's Welsh language acts, there's Scottish language acts, but of course in Northern Ireland, anything that is perceived as being Irish is, you know, is contentious. And, and that is very disappointing that we're still in that space. So I think we need to recognize that as well. And, um, you know, the fact that we so have so much work left to do, and it has to be based on equality and, um, you know, parity of esteem between both communities. And at this point, neither have that. Are we heading for an election? Is this where we're going? Is this what's going to happen? We're just heading straight for an election. Sam, you're uh, nodding your head. You're nodding your head. Go on. Tell us, tell us how, how, and, and again, I'm not asking anybody to to affiliate themselves politically, but uh, I do think people on the, uh, you know, we we understand that. I think Thomas made a good point before he left. There is a middle ground now that, um, you know, and, and the people at the extremes, um, they may think that 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 this is going to polarize society. I, my hope is that it won't. Um, from from the, the feedback that I'm getting, I actually uh, had a, a small poll on a couple of Facebook pages. And I know Facebook is not a great representation, but these pages would be, uh, solely from different uh, loyalist working class areas and give, give them a choice of the Australian Unionist, DUP, TUV, etc. And, and it's, the figures coming back are quite extreme as in the TUV are romping ahead. Now, I know that's not any sort of qualified feedback, but that gives a brief idea of where they're looking at. Uh, the middle ground may have been grown, but I can see it being squeezed from those soft unionists this time around. I think they're being pushed further to the unionist side of, of the vote. They may go Ulster unionist looking for a softer landing spot, but the extremes are starting to become really extreme. Um, and usually the, the guy with the loudest rattle is heard the most, and they are certainly being heard the most at the moment. And that is my fear. Uh, Emma is right. Uh, I believe what the DUP have done is electioneering. They, they know they're losing ground within the unionist community and had to offset that in some shape or form. Um, I don't believe they've fully thought through what they are doing. Um, but nevertheless, it, it has been welcomed by large portions of the loyalist community. Um, they don't see storming working, and they certainly don't see it working for them. Um, but there is an election coming. How that pans out after the election, because there's so many questions coming up around the Irish language, act, around whether unionists would sit with a uh, Sinn Féin first minister. There is so many variables even after an election, that we may be still sitting without a storm out sitting. It's it's one of those times where everything is fluid. Uh, it's hard to kneel down. Emma, that, 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 yeah. that sunny view of what's to come, do you agree with I do with have that? very optimistic view. <laughs> yes, I am still an optimist. It's, I'm still holding on despite politics in Northern Ireland. But I'm feeling very optimistic because I've actually just done a series of interviews with 18 to 24-year-olds to see you know, what the priorities are for young people in Northern Ireland and whether they feel motivated to vote. I think it is uh, important not to assume that this age group uh, will, you know, vote based on family ties or community ties, as historically has been the case. I think there's a new generation coming up. They're a lot more determined, not afraid to shake 
things up a bit. They're frustrated um, over the last two years during the pandemic in terms of how young people have been treated. And then they're also frustrated by the three years prior to that where we just didn't have an assembly. So um, I've spoken to quite a few of them and I'm hopeful uh, there will be over 40,000 first-time voters uh, for this election. There's 150,000 people aged 18 to 24 who are eligible to vote. And also um, currently on the electoral register, because we had a canvas last year where it was wiped and everyone had to re-register, uh, over 90% of those aged 20 to 24 have already registered for the upcoming election. And the electoral commission has said that um, they have the highest numbers of voters registered ahead of an election than ever before. So I do think there definitely is going to be space for a shakeup in this upcoming election. It will depend on whether or not people feel motivated to vote, whether they feel angry by what the DUP is doing. Um, and I think that, you know, uh, Sam was talking about the middle ground and it being squeezed. I think that might have been the case with Doug Beattie, that there might have been some soft unionists that might have went to the UUP. But those tweets that came out, I think that will actually follow the UUP. I think it will have an influence on the middle ground who will probably go back to alliance. Um, and I also think that there are those who are just not seeing things in this binary way anymore. I mean, I spoke to someone who's 19 who was a UUP member for four years from a unionist community, flags and every lamppost. And they've just switched to the SDLP as a member. So, you know, people are not afraid to we change the orange and green. It's funny you say that. We spoke to our friend in Portugal this week and they had the highest turnout. Um, I think they've had in, in, in decades. In, in, in decades. And it was half a million more people voted. Uh, yeah. Like and that's, the, that's significant in a country of 10 million people. And the difference it made was uh, um, a socialist majority government. That was the difference it made. So it, yeah. also, it also meant the far right went from one seat to 11. Okay, yeah, let's yeah, let's. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, true. so, so. Well, listen, I don't know if a TUV could really go up that many seats because it is essentially really just Jim Allister. So, you know, uh, that's where a lot of the support goes to. So, I, I think the the polling around the TUV will not actually happen and that that will probably lean more back into the DUP. And that's part of the reason why the DUP have pulled the plug and are taking this chance around. Um, you know, taking that harder, uh, more right side, more right wing, more conservative side of things, because they're going to try and win back some of those voters that have gone to the TUV. And I think that's probably going to happen. Uh, but as Sam also said, look, you know, once the votes are in, there's big concerns over what that might mean, because we can't get a clear answer from any unionist leader as to whether they will accept the democratic outcome of the election. If there's a Sinn Féin first minister, which if polls are to be believed is going to happen, Neither Doug Beattie nor Jeffrey Donaldson, and of course Jim Allister has actually said no, um, will say that they will go in to power sharing with the Sinn Féin First Minister. And I cannot stress enough that that is an incredibly anti-democratic position to say that. Um, and then on top of that, Jeffrey Donaldson has said there uh, over the last few days that uh, if the protocol is not removed, then they might not go back in at all. So it really just is... It's not how you're supposed to do politics. I, I, we do need to move on to a few other things, but Sam, just just on that, I mean, I can see you're, you're you're smiling, but it must be a frustration because here we are talking about these things, and that does nothing for anybody in working class communities. It delivers no, it doesn't deliver jobs, it doesn't deliver educational, mo social mobility, all of those things that 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 are really what matter and what even even climate action that that we need to talk about. You know, there's a big climate bill sitting in Stormont, and it's going nowhere. Yeah, I mean, this week has has overshadowed everything, including the cost of living increases and the cost of fuel and heat, home heat and oil going up. 
we're, we're probably going to have thousands of families sitting in the next week or two, freezing cold or starving. It's going to be one or the other. And yet we're still talking about this, this subject. I think what political parties here need to do is, A, state where they are in the protocol, get it out of the way early, and then let's start talking about the other issues. Let's start talking about education. Let's start talking about investment. Let's look at, at, at community groups like Bill Shankle who are trying to redevelop the waste ground, the over over abundance of waste ground in the greater Shankle area that doesn't exist anywhere else in Belfast. Um, let's look at the erosion of, of, of our communities. It's We're still talking about this. <laughs> to go back to the First Minister and Deputy First Minister point, this was a huge oversight at the beginning of the Good Friday Agreement. This should always be a joint seat, always, because it is a joint seat. One can't do without the other's consent or agreement. They are, in effect, joint First Ministers all the time. Giving them a name plaque to the door with Deputy and First Minister on it was a mistake. It should never have happened. We should have had just joint First Minister. And this would have negated this conversation taking place around whether you'll sit as a right-hand person to the First Minister of Sinn Féin. We should have had the foresight, and as usual in Northern Ireland, we don't. We react instead of proacting. Um, well, I, so, I, I, sorry, Sam. Go, Go on, finish your point there, Sam. It, I just, I would love to be talking about grown-up politics right now. I would love to be talking about investment and how how my community can move forward. But, but we're not. We're, we're sitting here talking about a protocol and Brexit, and the same thing we've been talking about for the last four or five years. But I want to get back to serving people who need to be served. Yes, and we do have to move on from the deflation of Northern Ireland integration into the deflation of inflation, Tony. Um, we are heading into a, or we're stuck bang in an inflation cycle at the moment. And this adds to the woes from Northern Ireland as well. Tell us a bit what's going on there, Tony. Well, obviously, it's a global issue since we've come out of the pandemic, which is, you know, this is it was it was it was forecast. So let's not let's not uh, kid ourselves. But what it's actually doing in uh, across the island of Ireland, where income inequality was high, and you got to remember in the, in the Republic of Ireland, pre social transfers, income inequality was the worst in the OECD, and in twenty nineteen. When we were, our economy was growing at the fastest rate in the OECD, levels of deprivation. So the Silk Report, the standard of living conditions, saw inequality marginally get worse when the economy was booming. And now we've seen this situation whereby we're, we're adding fuel to the fire. I saw, I think, in terms of um, the, in the north, uh, Emma and Sam might correct me, they're reckoning the cost is somewhere between 700 and 1,000 pounds extra a year you're going to need just to just to bear with the fuel and cost of uh, feeding yourselves. Um, it's something similar here, if not worse, because we're flying ahead and yet our economy is booming. But we see again from the most recent report, Martin, which is which was quite scary, that a majority of rental households now are dependent on some form of whether it be rentals, uh, rent allowance or, or housing assistance payment to lift them out just to pay the rent. And that lifts you out of that at risk of poverty threshold. So in effect, and this goes to another thing that came out today, Killian Woods's uh, piece in, in the Business Post that showed Ireland's largest um, landlord is now IRS REIT. And they received eight million in uh, in state subsidies of HAP payments. So we're renting off vulture funds who aren't we're not taxing, and that's just to keep people in the in these these homes. And it's all inflationary pressures. And I mean, like I don't know, um, Sam, you made the point there saying people are going to go hungry or or choose to heat or or eat. 
Um, that's very much something that's that's happening now. And when you have such levels of deprivation already, how do you how do you begin to t- change turn that back? Um, I, I think I think your your piece uh, last week with, with the, the incoming Portuguese government official stating that they were getting 161 billion euro from That's the pandemic right. fund uh, yeah. and Ireland wasn't. Yeah. Um, really, you need to be looking at the hierarchy of, of your government and saying, how are you? How are we rich but yet poor? How are we becoming a South American country where we're rich in assets but nobody on the ground sees it in any any shape or form? How is this possible? Um, and it doesn't really sell the idea of a 32-county state anymore, lads, I have to tell you. Um, I the idea that you are so rich on paper, but yet nobody has it in their pockets. Yeah, um, the, the, the example he used was uh, if you if you broke down every if every if every person in Equatorial New Guinea divided out the chickens, everybody had 20 chickens, but all the chickens were actually owned by two people. And yeah. in Ireland, there is in in the south, our economy is very much built on like five companies pay over over 50% of our corporation tax. That's the, that's the statistic. And if you're not involved with that, with those companies, with those multinationals, with the financing aspects of those multinationals or the servicing aspects of those, you're not going to get double digit wage inflation. Therefore, you're going to be actually poorer than you are. Um, Emma, I, I, I know you, you, you write in the Irish Times and you, you, you see you, you, you follow Irish politics a lot um, across the island. This must be something, though, that that is going to make it more difficult to have those conversations about about how we fix things on an island way island wide basis yeah i mean look uh, as you say it's a global issue um and it's going to be felt across this island and across these islands um and in, you know in northern ireland with there being such high levels of deprivation one in four children are currently living in poverty with the the rising costs uh that is only going to increase so you know it's um it's the the systems of both sides of the island really need to be improved and reworked. Um, you know, there is so much improvement that can be had there in terms of how we're operating. Neither are perfect. And uh, I think that when we put that in the framing of a United Ireland conversation, uh, I will again just highlight that for me, uh, conversations around United Ireland and constitutional change are an opportunity for people across this island to actually change things. Uh, because it would require such substantial change. It would require a new constitution. It would require reworking the political structures. It require reworking the education system. There is so much room for improvement in those areas. And I think the most substantial way to get those changes, which both sides of this island need, are going to be in the event of United Ireland. I, I just want to, sorry, Martin, I want to cover one thing that wasn't on the agenda, but I, I, um, I saw a letter that Maeve O'Rourke published um, on her we- on her website about the mother and baby homes. And I know, Martin, I was really annoyed about it yesterday. Uh, and it was a letter by a survivor of a mother and baby home. And it was addressed to Joe Humphrey, Sarah Carey and Patsy McGarry. And I just want to read a part of it. I'll, I'll link to it in the podcast. But you know absolutely nothing of the torture of little children, the suffering the little children forced to grow up in those hell holes of institutions. Let us all remember, to name but one, the suffering of young Joseph Pike, RIP. Let us put an end to the denying of truth in Ireland. Now, what happened this week in, in, in Irish media, where people across different aspects were, in effect, taking aim at the survivors of mother and baby homes, of Magdalene laundries and, and the likes, was really, really abhorrent and shouldn't be happening. And I just think that's, you know, this is, we need to listen to the survivors themselves. And I, I, I was really taken by this letter. So Martin, I know it wasn't, yeah, I just, well, I think that's, that's a common experience, North and South Sam, 
And that is a common experience where, where women and children were institutionalized for the crime of poverty. And it's still a crime, North and South. Like that is sort of the, the common thread of the people rather than those who, who lead us is that it's a fairly harsh place to be a child or to be a poor woman in Ireland. It is, whether you're North or South, it's a harsh place to be. Do you think that politics at times is just so abstract compared to where people's lives are that, that we're just caught up in nonsense all the time? Yeah, there, there is a, certainly a massive disconnect between the party politics that's played out on, in the houses of governments to what goes on on the ground. Um, people's everyday lives. We seem to get distracted by the big ticket that they want to throw in front of us. It's, it's the dead cat, as, as people call it, uh, that comes along, whether it be Brexit or, or some other scandal that's happened, RHI or whatever. But we never really get around to the nitty-gritty of, of, of looking at these day-to-day issues. Uh, I'm, I'm not well-versed in, in the mother and baby homes. I haven't done a lot of research into it. But from what I've seen, that, that is horrific. And, and the fact that the media have decided to turn the lens on the on the on the victims and survivors. I would rather call them, rather than pointing the blame where it should be and going after those relentlessly who who perpetrated this. It, it baffles me. And um, we we shouldn't be. We're all human. We feel this. Uh, even as Tony was reading that, I heard the emotion in his voice, and believe me, my heart started pounding a bit harder myself. And. Um, what we what we can do to our fellow man is quite horrific at times, um, and we need to reassess that. Um, can we can we can we have something um, a bit upbeat before we end, um, if that's okay? Well, I I wanted to mention Golfgate, and, and more particularly, I wanted to mention the hashtag that's been running with Golfgate, and the hashtag is how Ireland works, and really what it means is how Ireland doesn't work. And I think that is very important that there is so much in this in this country that work, doesn't work like Golfgate was absolutely typical, Tony. And I see today in the newspapers, they're called uh, survivors. They'll be looking for revenge. Uh, I, you know, I'm saying stay off the cocaine, lads. You are blowing your minds with all this stuff. It's nonsense. Utter nonsense. Um, look, uh, the only thing I'll say, the revisionism. Actually, it's funny. This is this is not we've seen in the last few weeks, obviously, um, Simon Coveney is going to appear yet again in front of an Iraqis committee to talk about yet again in a party that what was. And I love the phrase that was used, the moment of happiness, um, you know, Boris parties more than a than a than a teenager in Ibiza. Um, and we have to put up with, with this. And it just seems these days you can brazen it out in politics. There, I, I, I was under some sort of. Um, I had this. I, I used to think, particularly when it came to Westminster, and Emma, you might correct me that if a if a if a, if a prime minister misled or deliberately misled the, the the parliament, it was a resigning matter. And I think there's there's a website, Boris Johnson lies, and I think it's now over two thousand five hundred and sixty eight lies that he's told, including something like fourteen times that he's misled parliament. And there just seems to be absolutely no accountability. You know, it, it stems. I know we Martin's laughing at Golfgate, but it does speak to a, a culture in, of entitlement in politics. 
Yeah, actually it does. Um, and uh, you're right around the provision that if um, a prime minister or anyone in the House of Parliament misleads Parliament deliberately, then that is meant to be a resigning matter. But of course, uh, not today. It's not anymore. Um, and I think actually it's not just unique um, to Westminster. It's not unique to what we're seeing in the political classes in Northern Ireland or in the South. It's something that we're seeing globally where there just sort of is this different era of politics where there's an entitlement to be in that space and they think they can just brazen it out. It's all about PR. It's all about ch changing the narrative. There's a lot of spreading of misinformation, of disinformation and fake news, as, as Trump liked to, to, to coin it. And I think that that's something we're seeing uh, on a global level. And it's really uh, not a very good place to be in, to, in, in terms of democracy. But, uh, you know, what can we do about it uh, as people other than go to the polls, vote in who we think is going to be a better uh, person to represent our views and hope that we can get some sort of integrity back to politics. I think that's a big ask, Emma. I think that's a huge big ask. I don't think it's ever been there. I think we've had times of more integrity and less integrity, but I really like I really do feel sorry for you. You know, do, do, do you know how do, <laughs> do you know how easy it is to point to integrity in politics, Martin? This is the why, because they stand out. What was um, what was the green leader who stood down because he said he wouldn't? Trevor. Tre Trevor Sargent was Trevor the last Sar person who actually resigned in Ireland and on a point of principle. Principle. <laughs> yeah. You know, just it didn't have to be dragged kicking or screaming. Wasn't innocent afterwards. Wasn't going to have his fringe wasn't vindicated in the end of it all. You weren't all bad people for pointing out that he should have gone. You know, it's gone really pantomime at the moment. Well, the, re the revisionism is hilarious. Like, it, like justice for Phil Hogan has to be the greatest thing I've ever seen. The other thing, guys, that it's it's the lack of accountability, the lack of proper opposition yes. to, to these things that, that is the issue here. I mean, yeah, like, Keir like, Starmer should have skewed Boris Johnson so many times and he, and he misses the mark and the same goes for, for the dial. These guys should be trailed over the coals for what they're doing and, and the opposition just isn't strong enough to do I, it. I, 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 like, I mean, I genuinely, I think I got a big reaction on social media saying the most effective leftist uh, leader I know of these days is Geronimo de Alpaca. And that's, uh, and I think, you know, we all know how Keir Starmer dealt with poor old Geronimo. Um, but it's just, it's, it's, it is worrying that, that there is a lack of accountability in politics. I also think it was, it's quite telling that's like some of the journalists involved, like we've had Aoife and, uh, and Paul on this podcast after Golfgate on other on other subjects and all, and all of a sudden they've gone from oh you were journalist of the year last year to now oh will you bur bully that man out of out of office and it's yeah, you look the thing about politics Tony is and they'll tell you accountability is at the ballot box well no 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 politics is a game where you can be gone the next day and the entire and Emma Emma nailed it there's this entitlement that has crept in that it is my seat or it is my position no no it's always the people's seat you live and die at their whim but they don't like it and then we get all the pushback oh it's social media is this it's try no 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 this is politics has always been politics will always be politics you're gone in an instant when you screw up it's that simple or you should no be. no 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 you stop be. stop living a cloud cuckoo land um <laughs> yeah you should be but just to point out that uh like in northern ireland i think a big issue that we have 
um, is that, you know, the constant division and segregation and the sectarianism that comes out in our campaigns here when an election comes around, it puts people off. It's a form of voter suppression and it makes people sit at home because this idea creeps into people's minds where you think oh, it's never going to change. My vote's not going to make a difference. What's the point in going to the polls? And I think that we really, really need all of us in civic society that are in these spaces um, in the North over this election need to push back on that and, and say to people that, no, your vote can make a difference. You know, there are maybe 10 marginal seats that I can think of at the top of my head that are less than a thousand votes. Um, and people really can make a difference if they go out. And more than anything, it's just about putting forward your views and putting your vote to someone that you believe will represent your views most importantly. So I think there has to be strong messaging around pushing back on that form of voter suppression and encouraging people to go out there and cast their votes. Well, I, I I think we might we might wrap it up, but I do think actually, funnily enough, you're talking about a, a, an imminent election in in uh, installment and in in the north. We'd love one down here, Martin, at this stage. I, it's, uh, what what is it now? It is February. Uh, Eight months, Tony. Eight well, months. well, I do think what's interesting is we and it can't. It ha, there, there is there's an element of that something has to happen with the DPP and 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 Leo Varadkar's case, and that it's been watched like a hawk, as you know, and everybody's waiting to see what happens. And um, just on the week ahead, Killian Woods, who wrote the piece about Hibernia Reed, will be back on the podcast. Sam kindly referred a couple of people to me during uh, the last couple of weeks and we will be having those conversations as well over the coming days uh, and we'll be also doing something with the people who suffer with hearing loss because it is actually going to be hearing loss week I believe so we're doing something yeah. there as well Martin so there's, there's a lot coming up Emma have you anything coming in the paper? Yeah, I've got uh, a couple of pieces that will be coming out based on this idea of, you know, is the North Peace Babies going to change the political landscape of Northern Ireland forever? And, you know, I think that they might. Um, and then uh, also on my radar is the, the All Island Women's Forum. We're actually holding a significant peace building conference in Enniskillen, not this Thursday, but the following Thursday. And that's going to be bringing together women across this island to work collectively on the unfinished business of the Good Friday Agreement and how we can move forward as an island building on peace building, which I think is really important in the current climate. So I have lots to look forward to, lots of optimism and hope in, in my uh, agenda over the next two weeks. So I guess that might be part of the reason why I'm so hopeful today. I want to just uh, thank you all for coming on. I want to thank Thomas Byrne, who was here earlier. We did Next time we get him on, Martin, we have to give him a proper grill in. But, uh, but fair, fair play to him, folks. He was sitting in the car, kids at, kids outside, kicking the football around. He, he made the effort. Um, Sam, uh, happy birthday to your lovely, your lovely wife. Uh, and, and I hope you have a great day. Uh, and thanks for doing this in the middle of, of that day. Martin, I'll talk to you in the morning. <laughs> afternoon, Tony. Afternoon. <laughs> come on, come on. Well, but thanks for the birthday wishes for the wife of Pat's mom. But the, the other thing, I'm attending a few rallies this week and, and over the next two weeks, uh, anti-protocol rallies, um, to, to get a better beat on where they are standing. And maybe it's not my cup of tea, those guys who are going to be involved. Um, it could be my cup of tea, I don't know, I'm going to find out. But it's, I go to these because I, I like to give you guys feedback from it as well. Um, so over the next week or two, I will be at these rallies taking the pulse if you want and I'll quite happy to come back on and give you an update and, always, great, and, and you're always welcome here Sam despite despite the, despite the fact that you know you don't like coddle we will talk to you all very soon folks take care bye 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 <laughs>